Well, good morning again, church, and I had a chance to meet some first-time guests, and we're thrilled for everyone that comes to visit. I wanted to share, um, last week, it appears on Super Sunday that my prophecy may have been just a little bit off, okay? (laughs) Seattle did not win the Super Bowl as I predicted they might, okay? So it wasn't a Super Sunday, but I, I, I have to blame it on this. I was texting back and forth with Pete Carroll on that final drive, and I kept sending the text, beast mode, beast mode, okay, and all the guys know what I'm talking about. It was, the, it was a running play. It was supposed to be a running play, and had they run the ball, well, we know what would have happened. At least the odds indicate that, but uh, we do want to uh, celebrate with Andrew that his New England Patriots won. He was, he was thrilled about it. And, of course, Jeff and Michelle Tan, you both were there and got to witness that Super Bowl for the ages. So we're thrilled to have you back, and we're, we're delighted that you got to see such a terrific, a terrific game. Last Sunday was indeed a Super Sunday, but that was only part of the reason. The other big reason was that we have this little two-part series that we're doing on God's sovereignty in our suffering. And so we have some unfinished business as we continue to study God's sovereignty in our suffering. And last Sunday, I shared that when it comes to understanding God's sovereignty in our suffering, that the book of Job is exhibit A in the courtroom of God. There is not a better book for us to focus on to get our minds around the reality of God's sovereignty. It's the theme of the entire book. Every human being will face trials and sufferings on this side of the cross. And we affirm that it's not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when, just as James shares. We live in a very broken world. And the effects and consequences of sin are seen in every facet of life. Our physical health, right? Our personal relationships, the toil of man in the workplace. We just look across society and we see the ongoing breakdowns and corruption that take place. And on and on the list goes. As a result, trials and sufferings will exist on this side of eternity. The reality of all this didn't sneak up on God, nor did it leave him uncertain about the future, as some open theists even propose. In fact, just the opposite is true, as we'll see in our message today. God wants believers to understand and trust his sovereignty. Last week, we defined sovereignty as God's exercise of power over his creation. And then we talked about two aspects of it. One, do you remember this? One was active, one was passive. It was active in that it's seen in the good things that he specifically causes to happen. It is passive in that it's seen in the sufferings and the consequences of sin which he allows to happen. And both of these aspects are important to understand when studying the sovereignty of God. And in order to see his sovereignty more clearly, we narrowed our focus to three lessons from the life of Job so that we completely trust God's sovereignty through our trials and sufferings. And we covered the first two lessons, which I kept in the bulletin, 
for those of us who are here as a reminder and those of us who are joining us for the first time, it'll allow you to see what we covered. Lesson number one, we said, was this, the trials of Job's suffering should instruct us. And then we did uh, basically a brief overview of the trial that Job went through. Job endured really a tsunami of trials as all of his possessions, including his servants and animals and his most prized possessions, even his own children, 10 children, died suddenly and tragically. Only his wife remained. Even his physical health was removed completely as his body was covered in festering boils. And it says that Job at one point even took a a pot shirt. He took a piece of of broken glass to scrape off the, the infectious sores that had covered his entire body. His suffering, we know, lasted well over a week because Job 2.13 shares that his friends came and they sat with him for seven days and seven nights and they saw that his pain was great. How would Job respond to to such a trial? Then we, we looked at that. How did he respond? The book of Job shares that he was a very mature believer and firmly grounded in his faith in God. He trusted the Lord and we talked about how his example can serve us well as, as we, we looked to see how he responded when we're facing a trial of significant suffering. Job one twenty and 22 reveal that Job worshipped God, and through it all he did not sin, nor did he blame God for what was taking place. Job, we concluded, serves again as a great example. And just like Job, our faith needs to be braced for impact, and this led us directly to personal application. How would God have us respond? And I shared that whenever we face big trials, there's four temptations that come our way, typically four big ones, to, to feel helpless, hopeless, abandoned, or angry with God, or a combination of any of those four with, and that's not an exhaustive list by any means. And the reason for sharing that was there are truths in the scriptures that can shepherd us when we have these feelings. You're welcome to go back and listen to last week's message if you want to see what we covered. Lesson number two shared this. The temptations of Job's friends should caution us. In the book of Job, there were five people that interact and dialogue with him over the course of the book. Uh, The first person that we talked about was his wife, and then it was uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. And this required us to do a survey, a very quick one, I might add, of the largest section of the book. And throughout this massive section, there are exchanges recorded between Job and his five friends. And we briefly considered the temptations that some of them provide and how they should caution us. We concluded that there were basically two aspects of temptation based on the interaction that Job had with his friends. Temptation number one was to listen to counsel that shouldn't be listened to. And temptation number two, to give counsel that shouldn't be given. We concluded that the most effective ministry and the most effective counsel that his friends provided was at the the beginning in Job 2.13 where they went and they sat with him and they showed up to sympathize and comfort him day and night for a week. This was very effective ministry and 
I mentioned that it should encourage us. Sometimes when somebody's going through a trial, it's not up to us to have the right words to say, and we can feel the weight of that. Sometimes it's just a matter of us just showing up, showing up at the door with a meal, showing up just to, put, just to hug them and to say, I'm here for you. Anything you need, I care for you. I want to be, I want to walk through this with you and to comfort them in their hour of need. And this brings us right back to the point where we left off last week with our third and final lesson. Again, three lessons from the life of Job so that we can completely trust God's sovereignty through our trials and sufferings. Lesson number one, the trial, trials of Job's suffering should instruct us. Lesson number two, the temptations of Job's friends should caution us. Lesson number three, the truths about God's sovereignty should secure us. Really, if I can say this, this is the, the heart of the message. This is what God has for us. The journey through the book of Job thus far has been filled with numerous conversations that have taken place. And a large number of questions have been proposed by Job and his friends. And they're attempting to find out why God is allowing this trial of trials in Job's life. A blend of different thoughts, conjecture, prideful proposals, and scrutinized speculations, accompanied by some occasional accuracy, are consolidated in chapters 3 through 37. Finally, the Lord is about to speak. And how refreshing it is. Job chapters 38 through 42 are some of my favorites. Because God asked Job some amazing and humbling questions. And in doing so, he reveals his attention to the details as it relates to his sovereignty through the use of these rhetorical questions. This is letter A in your outline, by the way. And I did include some subpoints that weren't in last week's. God's sovereignty in the details is seen in nature, in Job's life, and we're also going to see it in our personal lives. And just like last week, again, we have a big text, and we're only doing a survey, right? So we're, we're, we're going to just have to take chunks and, and allow it to help us see clearly. And so Job chapter 38 is a great place for us to start. and It allows us to see what God says about his sovereignty in nature. So I want to turn your eyes to Job chapter 38, starting in verse 1 and I'll read for a while, and then we'll see where I stop. How's that? Let's go for it. Verse 1 from the NAS says this, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? And I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors? And I said, thus far you shall come but no farther and here your proud waves shall stop. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? That it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? 
It is changed like clay under the seal, and they stand forth like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and the uplifted arm is broken. Have you ever entered in the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all of this. Wow. Just in these opening 18 verses, God asks Job 11 questions, and this is really the first piece of humble pie that he feeds him. And God is helping Job and his friends see his sovereignty through his interaction. And this is going to continue all the way through chapter 38 through chapter 41. And God asked Job these 11 questions, but then 50 more questions are on their way. And he's describing his exercise of power over his creation. And this portion of scripture should humble a lot of proud secular scientists who claim that they have the theories, they have the understanding, right? They know how it all began. This is, this is what happened. And here in God's word, the truth is that he's allowing them to see just how simple-minded they are. It's true that the Bible is not a science book, but it is scientifically accurate when put under the microscope for observation. And I want to help you see this. So, uh, for, for example, in Job 26, 7, it says, God stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Okay, this written probably some 4,000 years ago. How did the writer know that the earth hangs on nothing? How did he know? In Job 38.7, it references the morning stars sang together and all of the sons of God shouted for joy. Did you know that in 1945, that scientists discovered that stars emit sound? They do. Stars emit sound. How could the author of Job possibly know this? Here's another one for you. 71% of the earth's surface is water. Only 29% is land. The average land height is 2,250 feet above sea level. The average ocean depth, 13,000 feet. This means the average ocean depth is six times deeper than land. If all the land was smoothed out, okay, if all the mountains and all the hills and everything was smoothed out, the ocean would cover the entire world by two miles. Wow. Completely, completely covered. But yet, the ocean stays where it is. And it goes no further. Why? Why? Look at Job 38, 10 and 11. God says this. And I place boundaries on it. And I set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here your proud waves shall stop. The sovereign God decided how. That's why. 
And God's sovereignty is seen throughout all of nature. And one of my favorite examples comes in Job chapter 41, where he talks about the Leviathan. And those who have a little bit of a scientific background know that these were, were uh, tremendous creatures. And many theologians believe that it's a direct reference to dinosaurs. And, and the Leviathan could have easily overwhelmed mankind. Yet God shares in his sovereignty how easily he was able to keep them in check. If you look at chapter 41 and verse 5, God asked Job, <laughs> this is great, God asked Job if he could play with the Leviathan like a bird. God could in his sovereignty. Talk about exercising his power over creation. You know, the, I can only imagine, you know, God just taking his little finger and, you know, tickling the Leviathan. And then, and then he had to accomplish his purposes, right? They're obviously, you know, the, the bearing and the effect that they could have had on mankind could have been cat, catastrophic. Catastrophic. So what's he do with, with, with his, he's able to just put him in extinction, just like that. The book of Job allows us to see God's sovereignty over nature. And now we need to shift the focus to Job. After Job hears this lengthy exposition intended to help him see that God was also sovereign over the trials that Job was going through, how would Job respond? What could he possibly say? And keep in mind that this is here for us. This is here for us so that we can also learn about the trials and the suffering that God would have us go through. Well, Job is humbled and he considers the foolishness of questioning God. His first reply is recorded in chapter 40 and it's very telling. Look at chapter 40, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer. Even twice, I will add nothing more. Job is just like a little kid, you know, in the cartoon. It's, it's a double shut up, you know. He just, you know what he puts his, his hands over his mouth because he realizes that he's misspoken and that he's misinformed about God's sovereignty. He realized both how he was wrong and how wrong his friends were in their speculation about God's sovereignty and purposes. And so the Lord continues through chapter 41 asking questions that reveal his sovereignty, exposing Job's ignorance and doubt. And here's what Job said in his second response in chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He was basically saying, God, I know you're all powerful, and I know you're all purposeful. I, I see it now. Verse 3 Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you. You instruct me. Do you see the humility that's taking place? Do you see the, 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 the honor and the, and the deference now that he is showing to, to the Lord and his sovereignty? 
Verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Ashes. And here Job is repenting of misunderstanding God's sovereignty and his purposes for allowing suffering. And you'll notice in the sermon outline that it says God's sovereignty in the details. And then in the second level of subpoints, it says in Job's life, despite Job's misunderstanding. Job didn't initially understand, but now after the Lord provides wisdom and direction by asking 60 plus rhetorical questions, he's able to see it and understand it, that God has greater purposes behind everything that he allows to happen, even in our suffering. Job missed it. And so did his friends. And I like the comment in the MacArthur Study Bible under Job 42.5 where it says, At last, Job said he understood God whom he had seen with the eyes of faith. He had never so well grasped the greatness, majesty, and sovereignty and independence of God as he did at that moment. God's sovereignty and all the details provided Job with tremendous security and it allowed Job to respond the way that he did in Job 42.3, when he says, Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. What was Job saying? His understanding of God's sovereignty truly blessed him. He, he was speechless. He had no words to, to respond. He saw how intimately acquainted God was with every detail of life. And now the Lord focuses on Job's friends in Job 42, 7 through 9, because they also lacked understanding. And he wanted them to learn the same lesson, which happens to be lesson number three for us. The truths about God's sovereignty should secure us. We've seen God's sovereignty in the details, in nature, in Job's life. And now let's consider it in our personal lives. And to see this, we're actually going to travel outside of the book of Job. And I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 139. If you have a copy of the text, please turn to Psalm 139. And as we read it together, I want you to pay special attention to how intimately acquainted... God is with the details of our lives. God's sovereignty secures us with his personal knowledge of us. Look at verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me, and when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. Like Job, God's sovereignty secured King David. And what is true for David and Job should also be true for us today. Just as verse 3 shares, God is intimately acquainted with all of our ways. His sovereignty is in all the details of our lives. And verse 5 really helps us to see this, that God's sovereignty 
uh, provide security when it says, You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Even in the turbulence of King David's life, he recognized that God's sovereignty secured him. Church, even in the turbulence of our trials and our sufferings, God's sovereignty secures us from all doubts and fears. Spurgeon said it best when he wrote, we are at our spiritual best when shipwrecked on the island of God's sovereignty. And David implies this reality when he wrote verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. Does the response sound familiar? Just just like Job, right? Job, Job finally saw it. He saw the reality of it. And it, it, it impacted him. And this is basically the same response that Job responds with in Job 42.3. David continues in verse 7 when he shares that God's sovereignty secures us with his personal presence with us. Look at verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. This is beautiful. It's the second time that David mentions the the reality that he, he recognizes that God's hand is on his life. Do you recognize that God's hand is on your life? It is. Through, through sustaining you, through, through growing you. And despite all the, the things that you're going through, his, his hand is there. We need to see it. This is another great truth for us to run to whenever we, we are vulnerable to the temptation that somehow God has abandoned us. Just like I mentioned last week in Psalm 46.1. Right? He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is a a very present help in in our time of trouble. His hand is on us. A good question for us to ask is whether we're running to him for help or if we're running to something else. As Huey instructed us this last week in the equipping hour, are, are we running to psychology for answers? Are we depending on psychotropic medications to get us through? Or are we looking to a sovereign God who controls all details in every aspect of our life? God wants to help us. We need to trust him. What did King David do? Saul was pursuing him, right? Absalom, entire army is coming after him, trying to take his life And notice verse 11, David writes, If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. What is David saying here? He recognizes the fact that God's sovereignty extends far beyond his circumstances of his life, and that there's no reason that he should be overwhelmed. And what a lesson for us. God's sovereignty should secure us from ever feeling overwhelmed. But it takes faith. It takes a commitment. It takes looking to him for help. It takes trusting him. It it, it takes 
getting off the throne sometimes, which we're tempted to do and try to figure it out ourselves, right? We're going to say, God, move over. Let, let, let me sit there for a minute. I'm going I'm to make some of the decisions. We know that what that will get us. And I don't know what area of your life that you felt most overwhelmed in, but I know that you know. Are you willing to allow God's sovereignty in your circumstances to secure you? Like Job's friends, are you more focused on the reality of your suffering than you are on the spiritual lesson that God is trying to teach you through it? Right? We can all be tempted to, to do that, right? We're going to focus on the, the, the suffering. That's the inclination. That's our bent. You know, we just want to be free. We, want to be free. we, want to, we, we don't want suffering, right? Don't be signing up for it. You, can, you know, if it, was, if it was on an aisle in the grocery store and you could actually go down and shop for it and put suffering into the cart, that aisle would be, it would be left alone. It would. Well, we don't, we don't want it. But yet God is accomplishing his purposes through it. And are we looking for those lessons that he's trying to, to teach us through being dependent upon him for not feeling helpless, hopeless, abandoned, or angry back at him, or misunderstanding his sovereignty, as Job and his friends were guilty of? Well, King David continues to write, and now God's word helps us to see that God's sovereignty secures us with his personal creation of us. And Job chapters 38 and 39 introduced us to God's sovereignty revealed through nature. And if you can just spend some time at a later point, it'll encourage you so much. If you've never read those chapters, maybe Job is a book that you're not very familiar with. Uh, go read chapters 38 through 42 this week. Spend some time just looking at those questions. They'll bless you immensely. But now I want you to see something here in Psalm 139. And I want you to pay attention to the exquisite detail that, that God talks about in, in his, his knowledge of you and I. Look in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when yet there was not one of them. What a powerful truth for us to see. And so often we can be tempted to think that somehow the trials and the sufferings, they just snuck up on us. That they just snuck up on God. And now here we are dealing with the aftermath. We're no longer certain about how things are going to turn out, right? Here's where verse 16 comes to the rescue. God saw our entire lives and ordained every aspect of what would take place in them before we even existed. I'll let to sink in for a moment. That, <laughs> that every single thing was factored in. That the trials that you just went through this last week or maybe last month, this just come out of nowhere. 
that God before the foundations of the earth had a plan and a purpose that he had put into motion. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. His eyes saw your DNA. He knew what color your eyes were going to be. He knew what color the eyes of your children were going to be. He knew how tall you were going to be. He knew every single chromosome in your body and what it was going to be. And yes, even what we might consider to be defects and what opened up the doors for trials and sufferings for us. That means my diabetes. That means grandma's cancer. That means every syndrome, disease, or medical condition that all the medicines listed in the physician's death reference treat. Okay? The PDR, this big book, and Huey was sharing with me that it's not even used that much uh, anymore by doctors, but it provides all the medicines that, that treat the illnesses in the book. But check this out. In verse 16, it says, in his book, never mind the PDR, never mind the stack of things that could potentially happen. In his book were all written the days that were ordained for me. God's sovereignty secured David when the Holy Spirit allowed him to see and record this truth. And what impact did it have on his soul? Verse 17, David says this, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. And David finishes the psalm by helping us see that God's sovereignty secures us with his personal protection of us. Verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. David knew that God's, in God's sovereignty, that he was going to protect him and protect God's people. And God's sovereignty secures us with that same blanket of protection today. And it's beautiful how David finishes this psalm and it provides great application for our hearts. Though David was just led by the Holy Spirit to pen out all these details as it relates to God's sovereignty, I want you to, to, to see what God was doing in his heart as he provides a great example of humility and transparency as he writes verses 23 and 24, it says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the way, in the everlasting way. Here, David confesses his inclination to be anxious and he invites God to search his heart to see if there's any hurtful way or in, his, in his heart or in his thinking. And anything that hinders us from seeing the sovereignty of God in our situation is, is going to be an impediment to 
to our growth spiritually, and it also is going to allow fear and doubt to surface. It's so important that we understand God's sovereignty so that we completely trust him through our trials and sufferings. The truths about God's sovereignty are intended to secure us. Well, we've seen the sovereignty in the details. Now let's consider letter B, God's sovereign hands. And to see this, we're also going to actually go outside the book of Job. And I want to invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah 45. And here we're going to be able to see God's sovereign hands. And in the context here, God is actually speaking through the, uh, the prophet Isaiah, recording this message, and he, he's, he's inter, interacting or engaged with, with Cyrus. And the entire chapter is really another exposition of God's sovereignty. And time won't permit us to look at it now, but maybe at a later point you can go back, perhaps later today or another day this week, and read it because it will really bless you. But we're going to go ahead and pick up in verse 5, and this is what God says. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me. And again, he's talking to who? King, eventually, King Cyrus. The men, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. And now we need to zero in here on verse 7. The one forming light and creating darkness causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these. You'll notice in your outline in the second level of subpoints um, that it lists God's active hand next to letter A and then God's passive hand next to letter B. And Isaiah 45, 7 allows us to see both. His active hand, it says it forms light and it causes well-being. And we alluded to this uh, already when we defined sovereignty last week as God's exercise over power, and then we said that there are, are two ways that God displays or exercises his power. The first one is, is active, seen in the good things that he causes to happen. Creation is an example of this that we see in, in, in Genesis. God is active, and he caused creation to happen. And after he finished, he declared that it was good. Of course, that was before sin had entered the picture. But the active hand of God is always at work, blessing mankind through acts of his common grace, as well as his saving or redemptive grace. Newness of life, both physically and spiritually, display the reality of God's active hand. In his sovereignty, he actively sustains all of his creation. We also know that even in death, which is a consequence of sin, that God still has an active role in death being sustained. Now that sounds strange. But if someone is officially declared dead, okay, it doesn't matter how many medical teams would go to try to resuscitate them. It ain't happening. If they're declared dead officially, you know, even, even the reality and of Walt Disney being cryogenically frozen. Poor, 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 poor Walt. If, if God declares you dead, then you're, you're dead. It doesn't matter how long they w- would try. If God has declared someone dead, he actively sustains the reality of his decision. And I share this as an example because sometimes it's hard for us to distinguish between God's active and passive hands. 
Most people don't struggle with the good things that God causes to happen. There's not a whole lot of wrestling going on there. The questions arise about his passive hand. And so let's look at his passive hand according to Isaiah 45, 7. God's passive hand allows for darkness and calamity. Specifically, it says this in the NAS, creating darkness and creating calamity. The ESV uses the word create as well. In the Hebrew, this word can also be translated forming or, or shaping out. His passive exercise of power is displayed in the suffering and the consequences of sin that he allows to happen. A good example of this can be seen, um, well, the, the best example I shared last week when we talked about the reality of, of Jesus being crucified and, and killed on, on the cross. It was a part of God's sovereign plan, and he allowed it to happen. But those men who carried that out, they're still going to be held accountable. They'll still be culpable for what they did. We also see both of God's hands in the sowing and reaping principle in the life of a believer. When we sow to the Spirit, we reap a spiritual harvest that God actively and directly causes to happen in our lives. When we sow to the flesh, we reap the consequences of sin that God allows to happen as a result. And and I want to share this. There's a big difference between directly causing something to happen versus indirectly allowing something to happen. Very important distinction. So the point that we need to see clearly here is that God is not the author of sin, nor is he directly responsible for evil or the consequences of sin and suffering. Yet in his sovereignty, he's able to use, or he's able, if we can use a word from Isaiah 45, 7, he's able to, to form or he's able to shape the things that, that, take, that take place so that it can accomplish his purposes. Now, the question that often comes up when you're having this conversation with somebody is, how can God be both good and sovereign, right, if evil exists? And actually, I meant to say omnipotent, really, in this, an aspect of his sovereignty. How can he be both good and all-powerful all if evil exists? And theologians have, have wrestled with this question for, for centuries. And they've tried to vindicate the goodness of God and his omnipotence with the presence of evil. And it's actually referred to as theodicy when you're talking about this from the Greek word theos, which is God and DK, which is, which is fairness or judgment. So the, the, the problem or the vindication is trying to come up with the fairness of God. How can he be good and, and all powerful and yet allow evil to exist? And there are many books that have been written on the subject, but I mentioned it last week, and for those that might have a, a, a deeper itch to scratch in this area, if you really want probably the best resource that you can get, John Feinberg's book, The Many Faces of Evil, is one that you'll want to try to order off Amazon and have a chance to, to check it out. I meant to bring a copy of it to hold up so you could see what it looked like, but um, the title should serve you well. Many Faces of Evil by John Feinberg. In the appendix of his book, he offers a strategy of theodicy and defense making. 
And if you're interested in this, just email me. Maybe you don't want to spend, the book's probably 20 or 25 bucks. Maybe you don't want to spend that, but you just want to see um, theodicy and, and defense making. If you email me, I'll, I'll, I'll scan the portion of those pages and allow you to, to read it so you can see exactly what's being talked about. And he basically concludes that God's allowance for evil to exist is what allowed him to fulfill his purposes when he chose to do something greater in the world beyond the existence of evil and suffering. The security that God wants us to see and understand is that nothing will take place. Absolutely nothing will take place in our lives unless his sovereign hands either cause it or allow it. And that, my friends, is to provide security for us. Evil and suffering will not last forever in the life of a believer, and that's also important to remember. It's, a temporal, it's on a temporal clock. It's on God's clock. And in all eternity, we will be removed from it. Well, we've seen God's sovereignty in the details. In nature, in Job's life, in our personal lives, we understand that God has sovereign hands that are allowing him to exercise his power over creation, both actively and passively. And to conclude our study, I thought it would bless us to consider one vital truth, which is letter C in your outline. God's sovereignty affirms his own willingness to suffer and die. When you think about God's sovereignty, I want you to imagine a big circle. And inside that circle is every detail of your life, which includes the great things, not just the good things, the great things that God causes to happen in your life. None greater, right, than for our hearts to be born again to live for him. That he would allow us to see the reality and and, and the desperate condition that we are as sinners. And that he would bring us to a place of faith and repentance. And he would allow us to see the need for Christ. That we would turn from living according to this world. And that we would trust completely in the redemptive work of Christ. That we would have forgiveness that we would have that conversation with God, that we would say, God, forgive me, be merciful upon me, a sinner. has to happen. That's the only way that we can be reconciled to God. And it is next to us having physical life to have spiritual life. And, and, and within those circles, okay, God causes that to happen. Now at the same time, also within that circle, are the trials, the difficulties, the sufferings that he has ordained before, before we even existed, that he's ordained for us to go through. And if our study on God's sovereignty was effective, I think we all know by now that God can choose to do anything that he wants to do and do it except sin, which goes without saying because it's impossible. He can't sin. But you get the point. Many people who don't know God or who misunderstand his sovereignty, you know what they think? They think God's cruel. They think he's a manipulator. They think he's some tyrant that just wants to suppress people, 
and make them obey all these rules and do all these things. That's what they think. That's what the world thinks. And nothing could be further from the truth. We have a God who gets in the circle with us. We have a God who is willing to step in and get into the circle with us. When he didn't have to. But he wanted to. And he did so willingly. Because he loves us. Because his heart was for us. God's sovereignty affirms his own willingness to suffer and die. John Piper wrote a book called um, Suffering in the Sovereignty of God. And very, very good book. And again, you guys will be broke because I'm recommending so many books to you. Um, maybe put them on the wish list and pick them up at a later point. But he wrote a section called The Ultimate Biblical Explanation for the Existence of Suffering. And to close our time, I want to read it to you because when somebody said something so well, and I'm not a gifted communicator, I'm really not. I I, I try to work hard, trying to get better. But when somebody says something so succinctly and so precisely, you're just better off reading it. You're better off just sharing it. And that's, that's how I want to bless you this morning. The ultimate biblical explanation for the existence of suffering. This is what he says. I believe the entire universe exists to display the greatness of the glory of the grace of God. I might have said it more simply that the entire universe exists to display the greatness of the glory of God. That would be true. But the Bible is even more specific. The glory of God shines most brightly, most fully, most beautifully in the manifestation of the glory of his grace. Therefore, this is the ultimate aim and the final explanation of all things, including suffering. God decreed from all eternity to display the greatness of the glory of his grace for the enjoyment of his creatures. And he revealed to us that this is the ultimate aim and explanation of why there is sin and why there is suffering and why there is a great suffering Savior. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in the flesh to suffer and die and by that suffering and death to save undeserving sinners like you and me. His coming to suffer and die is the supreme manifestation of the greatness of the glory of the grace of God. Or to say it a little differently, the death of Christ in supreme suffering is the highest, clearest, surest display of the glory of the grace of God. If that is true, then a stunning truth is revealed. Namely, suffering is an essential part of the created universe in which the greatness of the glory of the grace of God can be most fully revealed. Suffering is an essential part of the tapestry of the universe so that the weaving of grace can be seen for what it really is. Or to put it most simply and starkly, the ultimate reason that suffering exists in the universe is so that Christ might display the greatness of the glory of the grace of God by suffering in himself to overcome our suffering. 
the suffering of the utterly innocent and infinitely holy Son of God in the place of utterly undeserved sinners brings us to everlasting joy is the greatest display of the glory of God's grace that ever was or could be. This moment at Good Friday for which everything in the universe was planned. In conceiving a universe in which to display the glory of his grace, God did not choose plan B. There could be no greater display of the glory of the grace of God than what appeared or what happened at Calvary. Everything leading to it and everything flowing from it, explained by it, including all the suffering in the world. I was sharing just with a dear brother last week after I preached the, the first part of this message and my simplified version of what Piper just so arti- articulated so well was that it, suffering was, was the portrait, or excuse me, the canvas that God used to, to, to paint on the, the portrait of his grace through Christ. It was. And the truth about God's sovereignty should always secure us. And he's provided three lessons from the life of Job to help us understand the magnitude of his sovereignty. Pray with me. Father, you're good to provide us with everything that we need in terms of our understanding and I confess my own inadequacies and my own inabilities sometimes to articulate even some of the things that you allow me to learn. I pray that you'll continue to allow me to become more effective in that way. And yet your word does accomplish its purposes and it does go forth and it will challenge our hearts with truths that maybe we haven't seen before. And I pray, Father, that for every one of us that is in the faith, that is present here today, that we would consider the the magnitude and the reality of your sovereignty in our lives. And that you're not a tyrant. And that you take no pleasure even in the death of the wicked. That you abhor evil. And that's why you're not going to allow it to last forever in the life of a believer that you will call us out of this place. But until that time, there is a contradiction. And no theologian can claim to have the exact answers. Only you have those answers. Only you are truly good. Only you are truly all-powerful. And yet somehow you use and have allowed evil and the consequences of our suffering to be used to accomplish your purposes. I gladly bend the knee to that. I gladly do. And I pray, Father, for everyone that's in the faith here in our church that we would all bend the knee together. And even when the hard things come, when the the medical diagnosis comes, when the spiritual trial and the persecution of a, a family that's going to reject us because of our newfound faith in Christ, when, when our boss or our employees mock or ridicule because of our desire to share the gospel with them, that we would, we would suffer 
suffer in a way that just truly magnifies you, that we could always be reminded of the the reality of, of the one who suffered the greatest for us. And that we would embrace it. That we wouldn't run from it. That we would look to you because you are our strength and our refuge and you will help us. No trial did you give to us that we cannot endure if we'll trust you and lean upon you. And finally, Father, I pray for those that are here today that may just be even hearing this word sovereignty for the very first time, who are coming from nowhere, that they would see the the reality and begin to take a first step towards the reality that in your sovereignty, you want all people to repent that you want us to turn from this world and the foolish counsel of this world and that you want us to turn to you and that by faith that we would trust completely in Christ as our Lord and our Savior and that you would become the new authority in our lives so that we could experience the fullness of life that you have for us. And yet we only experience a foretaste because one day, when we breathe our last breath or whether you rapture us before then, one day when we're immediately in your presence, the effects and the consequences of evil and sin will be something that we never feel again. And we praise you for that. We look forward to that day. But until then, give us the grace, the grace to live for your glory the grace to endure every trial that comes our way, whether that's in our marriage, whether that's in our family relationships, whether that's in our school and the difficulty with unbelieving friends around us, whatever it might be, allow us to live for your glory and to suffer faithfully. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.